Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a charming, very brief work by one of our very favorite American composers, Joan Tower. Joan, of course, is a professor at uh, Bard College right down the river in, in uh, the Rhinebeck, Rhinecliff area. And she's been a professor there for a very long time, as has the other featured living composer on the program, George Syntakis. Joan has been writing a, a, a series of fanfares that she started many years ago. I think she took a little bit of umbrage, being herself a composer who happened to be a woman, at the title of Aaron Copeland's fanfare, per- perhaps or arguably the most popular fanfare in American history, the so-called Fanfare for the Common Man. As you may remember, Copeland wrote his fanfare for the common man during the Second World War, and as he described it, it wasn't to celebrate great and heroic generals or uh, famous people. It was really a fanfare for the common man, as stated. But Joan, I think, felt a little bit left out by the title, and so she started uh, by writing a first fanfare for the uncommon woman. And it was such a success, she actually, I think, wrote it for and dedicated it to Marin Alsap, a, a brilliant colleague of mine who's the conductor of the Baltimore symphony. And it was so much fun and went so well and got played so much that Joan wrote a second and then a third. And uh, as of now, she's up to her sixth fanfare for The Uncommon Woman, which once again was uh, premiered by Marin Alsop and the Baltimore Symphony. It's only about a year or two old, so it hasn't been played very frequently. And we were really honored to be able to play it as the opening of this very exciting Beethoven Ninth concert. It's about a five-minute work, and it actually is one of her more introspective fanfares. It has her usual signal characteristics in that Joan is a very rhythmically vital and and vibrant kind of composer. In fact, she uh, was raised in South America. I I believe her father was a mining engineer, and so she spent a number of her formative years as a small child through high school uh, living in places like Bolivia. And as she once described it to me, you know, whenever there would be music, uh, she was studying the piano, but when she was very little, they would just hand little Joni a, a percussion instrument, a gourd or a drum or some such thing, and she would jam with the band. And so I think that early experience with percussion really uh, infused her music, not only with a, a wonderful use of percussion instruments, but with a great rhythmic vitality, which I think you hear in this in this fanfare. The other element that I think is quickly recognized is that the harmonies are very pungent and exciting. Uh, it's not a particularly, quote, melodic work, but it has a great forward momentum and excitement and, and quite a, a an orchestrational beauty to it. The way she uses the orchestra is very fresh and I think very uh, engaging. The work is I think quite charming. I was quite struck because she came to the dress rehearsal and we'd been playing it at slightly above her marked tempo. And the one comment she made was that she really wanted it to be much more deliberate. She wasn't interested in having a big bombastic kind of a fast moving fanfare. She really wanted it to be kind of a more a more gentle and somewhat introspective piece. So here it is now, the opening work on our program, Joan Tower's sixth fanfare for the uncommon woman. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thank you. 
This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. We next turned to a, a new work by George Syntakis, but it actually, in a certain way, isn't a new work. It's a reimagining and a reinterpretation of a work from 1984, so actually a fairly early work of George Syntakis's. This is a work that uh, George wrote very early in his career, and he wrote it for a very small ensemble, only 14 instruments. And I must say, in that original version, it was called The Past, The Passion. It was a very uh, engaging work, and I must say, as, as George told me, that it's one of his works that has received the most performances, well over a hundred performances by different ensembles around the the country and the world. It's in two parts, the past and then the passion. And it it actually was a a sort of memory piece in in honor of and in memory of his his father who had passed away a few years earlier. So the first part of the piece, the first movement, uh, the past, is, is, I think the way he describes it is is as like a, a toy store of childhood memories and recollections. So there are all these kind of strange and wonderful little interjections. Little little rhythmic patterns and such that sound like little children's games and such, and little fragments of of melodies that sometimes sound like little children's songs. And then this leads kind of to a, a wonderful climax after. I think probably six or seven minutes, and uh, all that's left is the the piccolo playing kind of madly by itself, and that leads into a very introspective and very beautiful second section, which is the so-called passion part of the piece. Uh, If the first part is the past, the second part is the passion, and this passion is, I think, really this kind of sacred uh, memorial to his father, and he he actually uses as some of the material the beautiful chorale that forms the the central focus of the St. Matthew Passion and weaves little fragments of this chorale into the music. It starts immediately with a little statement of the opening theme of the chorale, which I think you may you may recognize as, as a Bach-sounding thing, and then it, it, it wanders very far from that, and at the end comes back to this beautiful chorale section. When we approached George about contributing a piece to this program, he said that he actually had been thinking for many years and had been asked many times by by orchestras whether he would consider making a full orchestra version of this once uh, originally very chamber, almost chamber ensemble-sized piece, this piece that was originally for 14 instruments. And he, he, being a very orchestral composer and somebody who thinks in big color tableaus and, and has great mastery of the orchestra, had really wanted for some time to turn turn it into a, a full orchestra piece. So this presented him with the opportunity to, to do that. So he took the original piece and really expanded the orchestration dramatically and other elements of the piece to turn it into a full, large orchestra piece, you know, essentially scored for the same-sized orchestra as Beethoven's Ninth. So this is, in fact, the world premiere of the full orchestra version of this piece, the original version uh, for 14 instruments being called the Past the Passion, and this full version just being called Passion. So here it is now, George Syntakis's work, Passion, a reimagining of an earlier work, The Past, The Passion, but this new version in its world premiere, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program was taken up by one monumental masterwork, arguably 
certainly one could make a case for the fact that this may in fact be the most, the single most influential piece in the entire history of orchestral music. Because in a certain way, this symphony ushered in the entire Romantic era and is responsible in a certain way more for the sound worlds of later composers than perhaps any other work in the repertoire. I'm, of course, talking about Ludwig van Beethoven's final symphony, his Symphony Number no. 9, the great D minor choral symphony. We're performing it once again with our dear friends from Albany Pro Musica, our great local chorus, and we're delighted, as always, to work with them and with Jose Daniel Flores Caraballo. In addition, we have four brilliant young soloists who I'll, who I'll introduce in a moment. But uh, first, just to speak a little bit about the, the importance of this music and its place in Beethoven's oeuvre, in the earliest part of the uh, 1800s, Beethoven was unbelievably prolific uh, from about 1795 or 1797 until about 1812, I would say two-thirds of his complete output uh, was created during that time period. The first eight symphonies, the five piano concertos, the violin concerto, incredible numbers of sonatas, string quartets, other chamber works, songs, etc., are all from that very fertile period at the very beginning of the 19th century. And then, uh, well, and, and of course, Beethoven had come to, to Vienna in the mid-1790s, mainly first known as a, a, a very celebrated uh, and kind of abandoned crazy piano virtuoso, but then also very much as a composer. And during this first decade of the, the 19th century, he really established himself as the most important and the most visionary composer really in, in the, the Western world, pretty much universally acclaimed as such. But then around 1812 or so, he got very involved in personal matters, personal issues. Uh, Maybe he was just exhausted also. He wasn't as young as he had been 10 or 15 years earlier. Uh, He also got very involved in this very complicated lawsuit around custody of his nephew, Carl, which colored the the second decade of of the 19th century for Beethoven. He was involved in this long legal battle with his sister-in-law. He ultimately gained custody of his nephew, Carl, and that in itself turned into a bit of a, a nightmare and wasn't really suited to raise a young man and Carl attempted suicide, and it was a, a lot of messy and difficult times. And Beethoven, for perhaps partially that reason, but partially maybe he just needed a psychic creative rest, put out remarkably few works from about 1812 to about 1818 relative to what he had been producing in the, the decade or so before. Uh, around 1818, he began to consider creating a, another symphony, a Ninth Symphony, and he had for many, many years uh, been very interested in setting this very famous Schiller Ode from the 1790s, and it was a, an ode, the Ode to Joy, the so-called Ode to Joy, that had had a, a huge kind of outsized influence on this kind of post-Enlightenment world of Europe in, you know, around the, the post-revolutionary period, the post-French Revolution period, and this idea of celebrating joy almost as a stand-in for traditional religion, this celebration of the, the sheer magnificence of human creation and of human existence, and very kind of wonderfully abandoned enlightenment kind of idea of celebrating the, the natural world. And yet there is this kind of pseudo-religious underpinning of it, because God is mentioned, and, and this idea of going over the, the starry firmament where God dwells. Uh, is sort of blended with this idea of celebrating the joy of creation. It took 
Beethoven a while, and he worked on the symphony for about five years, from 1818 to 1823, uh, developing the ideas for it. And he very much wanted it to be a, a full four-movement four symphony, but this radical idea of, of introducing a chorus and soloists in the last movement was something that, of course, had never been done before. In a way, that last movement sort of eclipses the earlier movements, even though they are among the most heavenly and brilliant things that Beethoven ever wrote, perhaps because the last movement exists almost as a, a kind of a standalone oratorio or cantata. Uh, of course, at the same time, the beginning of that uh, fourth movement refers back to the first three movements. We even hear snippets of those first three movements as the, the cellos and the basses sort of singing this not yet verbalized restative, this sung-spoken passage at the very beginning of the last movement. They, they renounce the ideas presented in those first three movements and keep looking for a new idea. And finally, they happen on this little fragment of a theme, which seems to excite them greatly. And they sort of affirmatively say, bum, 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 that's the idea. Great. And lead us toward uh, this amazing opening of the so-called Ode to Joy, where the baritone intones this sort of call to to his his fellowship of of friends uh, to celebrate joy. Interestingly, that that very first thing you hear the baritone sing at the beginning of the last movement is is a text that Beethoven himself formulates: "O Freunde, nicht diese Töne, O friends, not these sounds, the sounds of the first three movements. Let us find something else." And that leads into the Schiller Ode. So Beethoven actually tweaked the Schiller Ode. He actually edited it dramatically. The the full ode is much longer than what he actually used in the Ninth Symphony, and he actually interjects at certain points his own text, which I think is quite, quite daring. But the first three movements should in no way be neglected because they are in and of themselves revelations. The first movement really introduces a whole new kind of approach to the creation of orchestral music. In a way, the Fifth Symphony, that first movement, which is based on just that strange little f- fragment, da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, kind of points the way toward this. It's not a typical theme, you know, that's a slow introduction followed by a beautiful melodic theme that gets developed, as was usually the case in Haydn and Mozart's symphonies and even Beethoven's earlier symphonies. And in the Fifth Symphony, it's, it's a little bit more of a rhythmic idea or fragment. But in the Ninth Symphony, it's almost as if he's creating the universe from nothing. It's this just these little flicks of da-dum, da-dum, ba-bum, that eventually coalesce into the ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-ba-bum, bum, 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 which I guess you could call a theme, but it's so kind of kind of hewn from, from rough stone that it, it gives us this sense of space and time and distance that one just has never experienced before in in music. And I must say that this first movement and the way Beethoven builds this gigantic sort of creation of the universe is something that later composers noted with great interest and, and often tried to emulate in their on their own terms. So this first movement, this monumental first movement, uh, leads to a, a fabulous dance movement, the Molto Vivace, the second movement, which has that incredible timpani solo that pervades it. Bum-ba-dum, 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 bum-ba-dum. Again, this kind of Dionysian abandon, a, a, a scherzo, if you want to even call it that, or a, a fast dance movement, on a scale that we've never encountered before. The piece is longer than any third movement of practically any movement in the, the prior, in, in prior music, and it it's incredibly complex in the way it goes back and forth between the different sections and has this wonderful, very brief trio that comes back. Very dramatic, very Dionysian music filled with abandon, leading, uh, and again, this is kind of unusual in, in symphonies of the time. Usually the slow movement is second and the dance is third. In this case, because the first movement is so 
powerful, but in a way it sort of unfolds a little gradually. The second movement is this fast dance movement, and then the third movement is this moment of incredible repose, one of the the most gorgeous slow movements uh, that Beethoven ever wrote. It's a set of variations in which the, the, the violins first state the theme, but then for the rest of the movement, they really embellish it. And there are actually two different themes that are juxtaposed against each other in, in very beautiful ways. Uh, that third movement is one of the greatest slow movements in, in all of music. So the first three movements, not to be easily or lightly dismissed, finally lead to this monumental choral finale with, as, as I mentioned, the basses and celli trying to speak but wordlessly, and their material then taken up by the, the bass baritone, who intones this idea of Freude, Schöne Götter, Funken, joy, the this beautiful, godly uh, flame uh, that we should embrace, and then leading through to the, the chorus and amazing uh, musical development and evolution, two different ideas, uh, that first idea of Freude, Schöne Götter, Funken, the, the Ode to Joy, and then this contrasting idea, Seid umschlungen Million, and be embraced, you millions. And then eventually Beethoven combining these two ideas into a fugue where he has them running against each other, but somehow combined. The idea of God and the idea of man somehow combined together. In the middle also this fabulous moment where the tenor comes in and sings. Turkish music was still the rage even in the 1820s. Mozart had had written sort of music inspired by Turkish music, lots of drums and cymbals and such in his abduction from the Seraglio, his opera. And Beethoven here in the 1820s, much later, introducing Turkish music, strangely, into the middle of this fabulous oratorio movement, this finale of the of the symphony. And uh, it's a call to arms. The tenor sings, Fro, fro, joyful, joyful, like a soldier to the battle, I lead you to, to joy. Um, so great, great moments throughout. And the, the, the vocal quartet uh, comes in together later and sings these impossibly difficult vocal passages that are then echoed by the, the full chorus. So an amazing... Amazing creation, kind of a whole kitchen sink in this last movement. I mean, there's, you know, on the one hand, it's the most magnificent music ever written. On the other hand, it's kind of a strange hodgepodge of all sorts of different elements. Uh, sometimes people are shocked to hear the huge, passionate advocates of Beethoven and his genius, like me, say things like that. But it, it does have this strange hodgepodgey sense with all these different elements of, of vocalists and Turkish music and cellos and basses doing this strange uh, recitative sung spoken music, etc. But it works to create an unbelievable piece of musical drama and something that was really never equaled thereafter. But I must say that, that when you think of later composers, a good example would be Richard Wagner, who really credited the Ninth Symphony. I mean, Beethoven was his god, and the Ninth Symphony was the godhead. It, uh, it was almost as if he believed that everything he did and everything that later music did came out of and from the Ninth Symphony. I think to him, he felt it was the most important work in the entire uh, repertoire at the time. And composers like Bruckner based their entire career on jumping off from the point where Beethoven's Ninth pointed. And then, of course, composers like Brahms and Dvorak and name any 19th century composer were deeply, deeply influenced by the grandeur and the beauty and the uniqueness of this Ninth Symphony. It really stands at the fulcrum, at the the gate to Romanticism. And the Romantics, of course, uh, interpreted it as this great Romantic utterance, even though Beethoven wouldn't have known what Romanticism per se was. And in a way, the, the sort of incredible extravagance of it ushered in this whole magnificent world of, of the Romantics. 
So here it is now, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, performed by the Albany Symphony with four brilliant soloists, soprano Jennifer Black, mezzo-soprano Lucille Beer, one of our favorite local artists, tenor Christopher Bozica, and bass baritone Tyler Zimmerman. We're joined by our dear friends in Albany Pro Musica, Jose Daniel Flores Caraballo, artistic director. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.